Welcome to episode three of the weekly podcast against the states. I am Anarchist Mom, one of your hosts with the great Roger Roots. How are you this afternoon, Roger? I'm great. How about you, Felony Melanie Anarchist Mom? <laughs> I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I had a really, I had a really um, um, well, at least you're above ground, and that's all that matters. Well, my dad always used to say, well, at least you're vertical. So. That's right. <laughs> that's what I'm going with. I like what you've done with your hair. Well, it's always been like this. Like, when my mom died, I started getting, like, this gray streak right here. So then I just went to the hairdresser, and I'm like, just put an entire giant gray streak in there. So that's what we do. I like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I've grown a beard in the past year and it has come in with all this gray and white, which is not the norm that it used to be in the old days. So I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> you might be <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. All right. So all right. Tonight's tonight's topic topic going to be, um, um, higher education. Higher education. The sad, sorry state of modern American higher education. And almost everything that ails the institution could be fixed if we eliminated all the government from higher education. Absolutely. Because wasn't it like, hasn't like the cost of education gone up like exponentially ever since we've had these government subsidies for loans? I believe higher education has gone up like a thousand percent yeah, in the yeah. last few years from the due to the student loan program. Right. And it's a racket because they get all these kids who are young, have no, you know, life experience whatsoever. And they get them to take all these student loans out. They, you know, get in debt. And then, you know, by the time they're out of school, they're so far in debt. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. They, and they start the, their life out behind the eight ball, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's really a national tragedy because uh, I believe it is the largest source of debt in the country, in the United States. Bigger than credit card debt. Yeah. Bigger than credit card debt. Knowing how much student loan debt I have, I would have to, <laughs> I would have to agree with that statement. <laughs> Well, and, and then then there's the the problem that uh, that government has has uh, created with regard to the content of what passes for higher education, which is oh, worse yeah. than every year. I mean, th what they call science, they're just churning out uh, pro government propaganda essentially, and it's masquerading as science. Well, and it's, it's it's not even anything that you can challenge because you know um, you can't challenge their worldview and so it's more like they're just indoctrinating them because they don't give them you know any kind of perspective they don't give them any you know differing perspectives so it's just basically indoctrination higher education doctor indoctrination continuing from uh dr thomas soul says that you can a modern kid can go from kindergarten all through a graduate degree and never hear an anti-government lecture of any kind. Well, and that's true because I was listening to Tom Woods today and he had um, um, Tom DiLorenzo on there and he was talking about um, the, um, 
the Marxist state of the universities. And like Tom, did Tom he, he read a study and had like only 4% of all university professors will even admit to having any kind of conservative views. Only 4%. Oh. Uh, I attended UNLV uh, grad school in sociology, and we did a study of the, uh, took all the names of UNLV faculty, that's University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and typed them through the uh, Nevada State uh, Voter Registration. And uh, UNLV is more uh, Democrat than uh, UC Berkeley at that time that was several years ago but i don't i doubt it has changed much so it's it was well over 95 percent registered democrat damn that's a lot <laughs> and that's typical. typical well and it's it's become just an echo chamber of you know marxist ideology i mean there's no differing opinion there's no um you know um marketplace of ideas at all. And that's what college is supposed to be. I mean, like when you look back at like Socrates and all them and Aristotle, it's like, that's what, like their school of philosophy, that's what they suggested. And that's what they taught is like, you know, the Socratic method and all that other stuff for you to learn and to learn how to argue even the other person's point. So if you can do that, you actually know what you're talking about. But you know what they only teach them how to regurgitate information. Yeah, the essence of science is skepticism. Right. It, 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 it isn't science without skepticism. And yet, the modern what passes for science in modern government-funded universities is uh, uh, mostly a a uh, promotion of anti. Like that, they tell you not to be skeptical. Well, if you can't question it, it's a religion. Absolutely. It's not science. It's a religion. If it's supposed to be believed, you know, no matter what, you're supposed to have faith in it, you know, just whatever, and, you know, believe the people that are above you that know better, then that's not science. That has nothing to do with the scientific method. That's nothing but faith, and that's nothing but religion. Um, the another, you know, the science, in order to be science, has to have several several uh i guess ch tests to determine whether or not you're on the right track of, in pursuit of scientific knowledge one of which is validity and another one is repeatability so i frequently you know i talk about cl the climate change uh, the climate doomsday uh i call it a scam but let's call it a theory the climate doomsday theory the theory that man-made global warming by co2 is uh going to is it is either now creating a worldwide global catastrophe where it will soon do so in the near you know years i think uh, congresswoman alexandra ocasio cortez said didn't she say we had 12 years to save the earth or the earth is doomed yes yeah but they've been but, saying that for how long not one well, for, any of their climate predictions have ever come true not one for for 25 years they've been saying that crops will fail 25 years, actually, you could say 30 years, and yet crop production is is hitting records every couple of years. Corn yields, barley yields, wheat yields worldwide in North America, South America, uh, Western Hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere. Crops keep uh, being more and more improved, more and more uh, improvement per acre, and yet for 25 years they've been they've been saying that uh, CO2 is going to destroy. Production. Well, and here's something else. 
plants thrive on CO2. If there's more CO2 in the air, plants are going to do better. And if the, our temperature increases, wasn't that, wasn't like in the dark ages, the uh, medieval warming period is what helped bring us out of the dark ages? Yeah. So, I mean, couldn't it be seen as a good thing? Yeah. Because it's not going to be such a extreme change that, you know, everyone's going to be like burning in the, you know, the minute they go outside, they act like it's going to be, you know, you're just, well, it's just like COVID. They act like if you get COVID, you're going to die no matter what. But, you know, it's just like maybe the temperature increasing could be a good thing. Uh, I sometimes start with this question. Imagine that a millionaire or a billionaire came to you, uh, anyone who watches this podcast, just imagine if they asked you to tell them what the average global temperature was yesterday. Average global temperature in the entire world yesterday. Okay, just use your mind and try to think of how difficult that would be to determine. And of course, it, well, here's the thing. Even now, even at this moment with all the modern technology that we have, satellites we have satellites in the air we have increasingly there are more satellites but remember even with all the technology that we have it is just barely you are just barely able to state what the global temperature is the average global temperature remember the temperature changes from midnight 12 12 a.m to 12 p.m um or is it the opposite yeah, 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. Okay, it, the, the temperature goes up wherever you happen to be in the world. It goes up and then goes down. And then you have to think about what about 10, 10 miles to the east and the west and the north and the south and multiply that. And, you know, you have to have measurements. And, of course, up until recently, it was impossible to determine what the global average temperature was yesterday. Uh, even now, I would argue that even with all the satellite technology that we have, uh, remember, a satellite goes in an arc around the globe. It, it's it's missing what is over the mountain from from itself, and so there maybe you can triangulate multiple um, uh, satellites. But the point is, then you have to multiply that by 365 days in a year to get a global average. And so, you, you, I would argue that even today, if you can at all, it's barely you, you can barely achieve if you were paid a million dollars to uh, you know, be able to say what the average global temperature was in a given year, or let's say last year, or the year before, or the year before that. We know nothing about, I shouldn't say nothing, we know almost nothing about, you know, it's speculation about what the average global temperature was on a given date 50 years ago, or 100 right. years ago. And, and here's what's interesting. Science in order to be valid has to be replicatable. So if you handed, if this millionaire paid another person while you're working on answering his question, if he was paying a second person a million dollars, would they come up, would both of you come up with the same answer? Okay. Now, there are many problems. You might, but you'd probably end up repeating each other's sources you'd go to you'd, both of you would go to the same sources more than likely right uh, the question is what if you did not use the same let's say satellite record if you if you uh if you used if you both of you for a million dollars used a different source of, of data 
would you come up with the same answer? And of course, the, when you realize how difficult this really is, even with all the technology we have, you realize how preposterous it is that that someone can claim that they know what the average global temperature was in 1927 or, or 1833 or whatever. It's absolutely impossible. Uh, and of course, there are proxy measurements, mud samples. There are ice cores in Antarctica. There are tree rings. You can try to calculate things. But just this is the just is, is an example of how uh, truly unsettled science really is even today. And yet, in modern government-funded universities, they start with the idea that it's all settled and that you're not right. challenged. Right. They start out with their already preconceived notion that climate is changing and it's man-made, and then they go from there. Instead of coming up with a question, which would be part of the scientific method, you know, coming up with a question and then trying to answer that question. Now, so they already have the answer. yeah, a lot of people don't realize that there are major universities that actually have schools or programs about climate change communication and the psychology of convincing people about climate change. Yale has one called the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Now I ask you, if they have an entire program funded with millions of dollars on climate change communication, what really are the chances that they would also have scientists that would challenge the dominant uh, thesis or consensus there regarding you know, catastrophic man-made global warming. You see there's, there's, there's all of this, uh, you could say, bias that is built in, almost baked into the cake in well, these I things. I would say that most, if not all, universities, all of their faculty, you know, believe in climate change, believe in man-made climate change. I mean, I don't think I've been to one university or had one professor that doesn't, you know, already think that that's the case. I mean, and I, it's been like 10, 12 years since I've been in college. And, you know, so I can't even imagine what it is now. Um, I can tell you that I know of only one major university program that, that is skeptical at all. And that's the University of Alabama at Huntsville, where there are a couple of professors there who actually are in charge some of the pioneers of satellite temperature readings what are their names uh professor um university of alabama hunts i'm having our research producer university of alabama huntsville uh climate skeptics who are in charge of the satellite program over there there are just a couple of them uh, a couple of the professors in the world that are skeptical and they actually pioneered satellite temperature readings well, Dr. Roy like? Spencer, Dr. Roy Spencer, look him up. Roy he's the, he's an absolute Roy pioneer. Spencer? Roy Dr. Spencer. Roy, okay. Yeah, Roy Spencer, and he pioneered satellites to measure temperatures. And remember, there's about four, four or five data sets, and government is in charge. I think uh, NOAA has one, the National Oceanic and Aerospace Administration has a data set that they work on. Um, a couple others, but the UAH, University of Alabama and Huntsville uh, data set is the only one that shows that in fact, temperatures in the, since the satellite era began in the 1970s have not really gone up that uh, precipitously. I believe they have gone up slightly, 
but that's you just. Know, I've heard that they have too, but I mean, I don't know. I've also, you know, how many times have they predicted that we're going to have a mini ice age? So. Right. So um, I mean, I think that they don't really know what they're talking about. Honestly, I think it's all just speculation. Yeah, and of course, then we're we're in the larger, you know, we've gotten way into the climate change discussion, but we were we were also going to talk about. <laughs> we're not we, even on topic. We need to have a full to, uh, full podcast dedicated just to that scam. Yeah, but well, uh, I remember when all those um, I can't remember what year it was when they found all those records were doctored, making the temperatures seem higher than what they were. Well, that's uh, ongoing research, honestly, by one of my favorite people on the internet, and that's Tony Heller. Tony Heller out of, uh, he's living in Cheyenne, Wyoming now, probably one of the world's greatest data scientists. And what he has started doing, just years ago, he started comparing old government temperature charts to new government temperature charts. And he started to notice that the modern government agencies are cooling the past. They're actually going into the past data sets and making the past temperature readings colder than they were actually measured by our great great grandfather. Oh my god. They're actually been oh doctoring the records. And uh, you know, people are shocked but it's he, he's he's proven this time and again. I mean, hundreds of times. Uh, well, like how many times could you say that to someone and say, and like show them actual evidence of it and then they'd still turn a blind eye to it. They'd be like, "Oh no." I don't know. I, that wouldn't happen. It's just like they just totally, you know, block it out because it doesn't fit with what they believe. So they're just going to ignore it. You know, it's like all the evidence of um, FDR knowing that they were going to that the Japanese were going to bomb Pearl Harbor. It's like you can read that book, Day of Deceit. He's got like this much, you know, corroborating evidence in the back. And you can tell people that and they're like, oh, that's just some conspiracy theory. I mean, he's got actual you know, copies of, you know, telegrams and stuff uh, back there. It's like, I don't know how much more you need it in your face for you to believe it. It's funny. There were people who knew it was a scam from the very beginning. Montana had a congresswoman. Actually, she was the very first woman ever in Congress. Um, and she's the only person who voted against American entry, both into World War One and World War Two. Her name was Jeanette Rankin. Jeanette Rankin was almost shouted out of Congress when she voted against uh, U.S. entry into World War II after December 7th, Pearl Harbor. But was she, was when, she was in Congress another week or two before she was pretty much driven out. She was so hated for her vote. But one thing that she did is that she went onto the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives and she challenged, and this was like December 8th, like the day after Pearl Harbor, she started asking questions like, wait a minute, there's a lot that doesn't make sense. She was already getting information that uh, President FDR had, uh, that the military had basically lined up a bunch of modern ships at Pearl Harbor and practically baited the uh, Japanese to bomb them. And they and the ships that were bombed were not the, the top of the fleet. And they were almost deliberately set out there as uh, props to be bombed. <laughs> What a How much more are we going to take? Right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, what, what needs to happen for people to wake up? I mean, I honestly, 
when this when COVID started, I was like, there's no way anyone's gonna let this lockdown happen. There's no way. Because I, I just couldn't, but people just, oh, okay, I'll just go stay in my house for two weeks. And I'm like, you are an idiot. And, and here we are a year later. A year later, two weeks to flatten the curb, and there's still states that, you know, my state, it, my gov the governor of my state lifted all COVID restrictions. However, each individual city can make their own mandates or whatever. So my city has a mask mandate, and then we have reduced capacity at restaurants and stores and stuff like that. So it's like, I, I don't know, you know, it's, you know, and every day you still have the stupid, oh, 400 people died of COVID in this county, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, okay, well, how many people died of other things? I mean, this is- And by the way, the, the death numbers wouldn't even exist like they do without the directive of the CDC on March, was it 24th or 28th of 2020, where the CDC literally changed the way that- Doctors fill out death certificates. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, now it's like if you've had a positive COVID test within 30 days, your death is marked as COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And then that lady, I can't, I don't know, I can't remember what her name is. It starts with the B, it ends with the or starts with the B, her last name. But I remember seeing her say, "Oh yeah, if you even think it's COVID, mark it as COVID." If it even if the test doesn't come out positive, you know, we better err on the side of caution. It's like, Dr. Burks. Yeah. yeah. It's just like well, that's padding the numbers. Yeah. That's not scientific. It, and and it, it, it's a change in how the doctors have always filled out death certificates yeah. for the last hundred years. It's well, a it's fundamental. Because like even with the vaccines, it's like how many people have died after receiving the vaccine? But they don't go back and say, oh, it's been 30 days, you know, it's been with 30 days since they received the vaccine. So it's a vaccine related death. But no, it's not because it's got to be something else. It can't be because of the vaccine. And they've been doing that with vaccines for I don't know how long, because my one of my sons got the MMR, MMR vaccination and he came down with measles three weeks later. And the doctor told me, oh, no, it's not measles. Wow. There's no way in hell what he had was not measles. Wow. I mean, you can look online and see pictures, look at his symptoms, you know, look at pictures of other people with measles. He had measles. But she's like, no, it's not measles. Unbelievable. Back to our topic of these poor college, <laughs> these poor college students. That it's very related, you know. A lot of them are practically in prison at these universities right now. Oh my God, yes. It's terrible. Do you remember seeing that article that was posted like um, some kid put on a sheet on his dorm room window, like help me, I'm yes. a prisoner or something like yeah. that? And I think that was the name. Yeah. How many kids have killed themselves over this? Yeah. And like those COVID oh. hotels and um, kids are like locked in their dorm rooms if there's like a positive COVID test in their you know dorm rooms and they can't leave for two weeks and then they get subpar food and you know all this other crap and it's just like take your kids out of university and like what about like Yale and Harvard they're still charging like fifty sixty thousand dollars a year but all their classes are online. Yep, it's just, it's uh, national disgrace.
It's a racket. It is. It's it's terrible. Uh, I've even read that in a lot of uh, colleges, the students that are locked down have pacts with themselves. They have agreements amongst each other that if they test positive for COVID, that they will not rat out each other because of the uh, contact tracing programs that are in place because the government is trying to implement this contact tracing where if one person tests positive, government tries to ask them, well, who, who, who have you had contact with? Who are your friends? Where have you met with? What people have you met with? Modern college students are basically agreeing with themselves that they are not going to rat out their, their uh, fellow students. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. That's terrible. I would never do that. It's the, oh my God. <laughs> I'm just so frustrated at this whole situation. And to think that these parents are sending their kids there and are okay with it. It's so sad. I started a, an institution called Lysander Spooner University, uh, which, which you can find. Uh, our website is LysanderSpoonerUniversity.com. And, uh, you know, it, it's mostly a libertarian blog at the moment. But I, I hope and intend to turn it into ultimately a, um, a brick and mortar type university that teaches the principles of anarchy and freedom. Uh, in the in the mold of the great Massachusetts writer Lysander Spooner, who uh, lived in the 1800s and uh, wrote some of the best stuff about government. And uh, man, he, uh, if he if he, I could go back in time and like have lunch with someone, he, he he would be one of the people I would have lunch with. And Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman. Uh, definitely. Now, she was a little bit of a left anarchist, I she think. She was more of a socialist, but she was freaking badass. <laughs> she has some awesome quotes on anarchy. I'll send you some. Awesome. <laughs> um, let's see. There's many other aspects of modern higher education. Number one, the, just the expense of it. Uh, the, these institutions are also, they are tax shelters for, for, you could call them globalist billionaires who, uh, who will plug down money under the idea that these are nonprofit institutions. And, uh, I can tell you that the current governor of Montana, his name is Greg Gianforte, very wealthy man. Uh, he got his wealth, uh, starting, uh, some software, uh, engineering enterprises i think it was called right now technologies ultimately i think it formed with um it is now oracle it's part of the oracle stuff and um anyway gn40 became fabulously wealthy i'm sure he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars he's now the governor of montana republican but when he was campaigning for uh i think it was congress not long ago Prior to him campaigning, he, he spent $10 million to have a building on the Montana State University campus renamed for him. So there's a building, and of course, this is great headlines if you're running for office, to have a building on the local university campus named for you. And, you know, it's free, it's, it's free I shouldn't say free advertising, it is advertising, but oh, yeah. it's not one that needs to be disclosed to the, the uh, political campaign police. So just think about this, you know, and and th this happens with nonprofits all of all kinds, not just oh, yeah. universities. 
Well, and like most of the universities now, they say they're private, but can you really call them private when they get so much subsidy from the U.S. government in student loans? I mean, exactly. I mean, of course, they're going to they're gonna kowtow to whatever the government wants them to do because they're getting all this great free money and they can charge, you know, whatever they want for classes now because they pretty much have a blank check. I believe there are only maybe two large universities two or three that don't take any uh, student loan money. One of them, of course, is uh, the Great Hillsdale College in Michigan, which does not take any student with government, with federal student loans. They don't even process them. They don't even uh, allow student loans to be used on their campus programs. Another one might be Bob Jones University. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but for many years, they would not have uh, student loan subsidized in uh, wow. I, I almost said inmates students <laughs> <laughs> well they kind of are inmates yeah they are i mean it's kind of yeah. sad but yeah now uh lysander spooner university of course in the past year has been hit by these lockdowns and just like every other institution we haven't been able to have gatherings large gatherings over 50 people uh, so we haven't really put on any uh, the, the large live seminars that we had put on in the past. Uh, we did put on a great event in July in Montana called Rage Against the State, which Lysander Spoon University sponsored. I'm hoping that this coming year in uh, Rapid City, of course, there's this great event upcoming called Freedom Fest. And I believe we're going to have a presence there. I think... Uh, Hopefully, the weekly podcast against the state will be broadcasting live from there. Wouldn't that be cool? That'll be awesome. And um, hopefully, Lysander Spooner University can uh, do something in the Rapid City area. That'll be in July 2021. Well, we're going to, it's going to be awesome. Indeed. Um, so, let's think. Anything else we need to say before we wrap it up? How many, how many times did you go back to school? Me? Yeah. Did you go like, did you go start and then finish right away? Or did you like start, then stop, go back? Was it just kind of like. I'm a high school drop. I didn't even graduate from high school. I ended up with a GED out of the state of Florida. I'm a runaway former hitchhiker. You know, I didn't really start college till I was really 24 25 and then i ended up having serious legal problems <laughs> and i uh ended up getting uh some college credits while incarcerated ironically ended up uh going to college after my release and i was 26 27 years old at that point I ended up uh surprised myself i was an honor student throughout that time and i did very well frequently i was the top student in the class and i ended up going to law school Roger Williams University. So my, and then, and then I later got a PhD because my criminal record delayed my law uh, license by years, and so I had to. It took four years to get a law license, even though I graduated twelfth in my law school class. Um, due to my criminal record, I had all kinds of problems, and uh, so I my 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 higher education trajectory is different than anyone else in the world. I'm the only one of my kind. <laughs> well, that's something that I think that 
they should focus on um, in like high school or whatever is telling kids that it's okay if they don't go to college right away. Because like for me, I went to college right out of high school and then I went for a couple years and then I decided to quit because I didn't like what I was majoring in. Then I had some kids and then I went back, then I changed my major and then I, you know, went back maybe a few years later and I changed my major yet again. And so I think that if you don't know what you want to do, I think it's stupid to go to college and waste all that money because I think it is a waste. You know, so much of it is a waste. I've actually taught at the college level, um, you know, while I was waiting on my law license. And I, I took the bar, passed the bar my first, my, the Rhode Island bar my first time. But then I was delayed due to all these background issues. So I decided to stay in higher education foolishly. <laughs> and so I ended up getting a PhD in sociology. I actually have a master's degree in criminal justice as well. And I, again, I've always done great. You know, you, you often hear people say, I don't test well. Well, I was one that tested well. All right. So I was really good on tests too. I always got like 96, 98. I mean, I always like, like almost got 100% on every one of my tests. Yeah. I always graduated near the top. I would, any test, I usually was the top student or the second or third. Um, and so I ended up getting a PhD in sociology, which with $2 and that. I can purchase a cup of coffee at McDonald's. Well, uh, my degree is um, physical anthropology and biology. Because I wanted to study um, human evolution. I wanted to go on to get my PhD in human evolution. Uh, I've taught, again, I, I have a PhD and I, I've, I've been hired. A few colleges have hired me at times and the students love me. I actually... Uh, I taught at a, a historically black college in Texas for, for two years. And I had students come up to me uh, at graduation to introduce me to their parents. And they told their parents I was their favorite professor. Aww. I mean, I've, the students always loved me, but the, but the faculty and the administration, not so much. <laughs> and so, uh, frankly, uh, I, I, I never fit in. Once they realized my philo philosophical differences and the fact that I don't worship government and worship state control over my neighbors. Yeah. Uh, it's, it doesn't take long before you, you have to walk on eggshells when you're on a government college campus. You literally oh, can't yeah. keep your mind. Uh, well, I remember when I first went back to school in 2010, you know, I have six boys and um, I was a stay-at-home mom and I remember watching cartoons with them, you know, when we watch TV a lot. And like all these men were portrayed as like, you know, bumbling idiots. And so I was thinking to myself, man, men really need their own kind of movement here, like the feminist movement, because, you know, they're being portrayed like idiots on TV. And I don't want my sons to think that this is how they're supposed to act. I mean, this is ridiculous. And so I was really naive at the time. And I went to my anthropology teacher and I'm like, you know, men really need their own movement. And she looked at me like I had like monkeys flying out of my butt or something. She looked at me like I was insane. And I was like, okay, I think I don't, I won't talk about that anymore. <laughs> I recall I had a college teaching job in New York, Long Island, New York. And I was with a bunch of faculty. We were chit chatting and, reading the local newspaper, it might have been the New York Times, I'm not even sure. And the newspaper had some story about 
some poor schmuck who was arrested in New York City for bringing in weapons into the city of New York. All right. And, well, no, no. <laughs> I'm from Montana, and I was commenting on the story. The kid, the poor guy, was busted for bringing in throwing stars, like nunchucks, throwing oh stars. God. All right, and and maybe a gun or two. And, and we're talking federal indictment in New York City. And I was talking about. I'm from Montana, where weapons are everywhere. Right. And so I'm like, this is a joke, and I, this guy should be given an award for bringing in weapons to the city of New York. And it was as I I left the room and I was walking down the hall. I could hear these other professors talking about me behind my back, like, "Oh my God, that guy!" Like they were literally there. He's one of those that we've heard about. <laughs> He's one of those. <laughs> well, you know, okay. Something else that I think colleges and maybe parents actually should do with their kids is say, "Hey, you know," because like. Kids are always taught, well, do what you want to do. Do what feels good to you. So they pick these majors that, like, will have absolutely no possibility of making, you know, any kind of substantial amount of money, like feminist interpretive dance or something, you know, some stupid major like that. And so they need to, like, weigh how much debt am I taking on versus how much money I have potentially to make. You know what I'm saying? It's just like they need to weigh these, these, you know, these variables before they decide to take on all this debt and major in something ridiculous. Like I have a friend that majored in religious antiquities. Well, what freaking job are you going to get with that? I mean, at a maybe a museum, but I mean, how many museums with, are there? With that and two dollars, they can buy a cup of coffee. Exactly. Well, he went on to go and get his uh, a master's in finance because you have a better chance of getting a job with a finance degree than a religious antiquities degree. I love, I love college learning. I love hanging around in libraries. You know, I love that, that life. I love the culture of science and history and yeah. you know, even, uh, you know, uh, arts and sciences, the humanities, but, uh, you know, it has to be said that one of the requirements that is unstated for being a professor is you have to be liberal. You have to be government worshiping. And if you're not, you pretty much have to walk on eggshells. You are, you won't get along with all the, well, I, it's funny. I, I, you would get along, but you won't be regarded as one of the brotherhood you know, among the faculty at those universities. Right. Well, and back to what I was talking about earlier, um, I was listening to that podcast with Tom DiLorenzo today, um, the Tom Woods show, and he was talking about back in the 80s even, he wrote quite a few um, economics papers refuting taxes and you know increasing taxes, and they were kind of pretty much anti-government kind of thing. And he said he had a few professors come up to him and say, look, you need to stop being so anti-government or you're not going to make it. And so... I mean, I've been back there. in the eighties. I've been there. So. Yep. Yeah. Um, I once had an interview. They flew me out, believe it or not. I once had a job interview at uh, Seton Hall University, which is Catholic, of course. Right. But it's also part of the government. Uh, it's on the government gravy train, and it's the faculty are all far left socialist, you know. And so they were interviewing me to uh, 
for a professor job in uh, I forget either sociology or criminal criminology and uh, asked me what I thought of privatization of prisons. Now here's what's interesting. I hate prisons. As you know, I hate I hate the police state and I hate the criminal justice system for what it does to people it destroys so many lives and it empowers the state and it empowers the forces of government control just exponentially. Okay, but I told these recruiters that had flown me out there for the interview, I said, well, the truth is that privatization is generally a good thing. It makes any delivery of goods or services more efficient and, and higher quality at less cost. And right. so, truth be known, privatization of prisons is probably a lot like privatizations of janitor service, privatization of uh, sewer service, privatization of road building. It probably is an improvement on government control in terms of the cost. All right. But having said that, of course, I oppose it because we don't really want the government to, uh, to have more efficient imprisonization powers. It already is a, a very efficient destroyer of human lives in that way. So if you, and so anyway, I went off on this great lecture to them about privatization. And I realized about midway through the interview, I cost myself the job because they're not going to hire me. Oh, well. Oh, well. What can you do? What can you do? I learned in my life to never, ever say anything to anyone about my political views in my um, job life. <laughs> it's it's always a mistake yeah it is because most of the time especially now that like i um identify as an anarchist an anarcho-capitalist you know someone said something oh anarchy is nothing but you know bombing buildings and stuff like that and i'm like okay <laughs> <laughs> you obviously have just spent most of your life watching tv <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we've been going for 42 minutes. Do you want to start wrapping things up or? No, I want you to start wrapping things up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to start wrapping things up now. <laughs> All right. So what's our topic next week? Next week, we're talking about the Constitution and we're going to have that guy on with us which you know his name and it's Michael. Something. I know his name, Michael Pamation, I think. Yeah. Something like that. He's a, and I, he, he's a fine gentleman and we're looking forward to having him as a guest. Matthew. Matthew. Is it Matthew? Yes. <laughs> this is how well I know the man. <laughs> well, he messaged me. He's like, yeah, I want to be on the show. And I'm like, well, okay. Well, let's have him on, and and that'll actually it means that there's at least one other person interested enough in the podcast against the state to want to sit with us, and uh, we're going to discuss constitutional law, constitutional history. Well, he wants and, to get back to um, a more constitutional, um, a more nat what do you what do you say a more um, constitution based society, and I. Figure me and you will take the more Lysander Spooner approach, you know, the constitution of no authority kind of thing. Uh, yes. Now, my, you know, I'm, I'm a Not to borrow a phrase, but the constitution is just a goddamn piece of paper. 
I, I'm a constitutional historian myself to some extent. I'd say to a large extent. I've published law review articles on the Constitution. Well, um, I was raised by my dad, you know, and he it, for a while he was like, oh, the Constitution, you know, and all this other stuff until, you know, he became a full-fledged anarchist. But, you know, I mean, the, the one part of the of the Constitution that is most worth revering is the Bill of Rights. Right, exactly. And and the Bill of Rights almost stands alone as a conceptual statement of human rights through the ages. Right. And it almost, you know, you could say it's, it's almost self-standing. And, and, and if you really look at constitutional history, uh, the Constitution, you could say, speaks with two voices, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And the anti-federalists were the libertarians of their day, or the the anarchists of their day, and they succeeded in making enough trouble for the federalists that the federalists ultimately granted the Bill of Rights as an attachment. Right. So the, right. the anti-federalists are the sort of heroes of the constitutional story. Um, but yeah, I, I, if you look at that great uh, essay by Lysander Spooner, "The Constitution of No Authority," uh, he makes absolutely fantastic arguments no one should be bound by a document that he didn't sign right i mean you know it's just common sense right how and, can you uh, bind someone who hasn't even been born yet to a constitution just because they've been born in a particular region i mean it's exactly. not like they chose to be born in that region right um so i'm looking forward to next week me too i'm looking forward to meeting this guy so, I guess until then, we bid you adieu. Okay. <laughs> until next week. Bye.